Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Do you run from your dark side and, and only acknowledge your bright, bubbly side? Todd Cashton is a professor at George Mason University and a recognized authority on well being and social relationships. His latest book is The Upside of Your Dark Side. Why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. Todd's here today to talk about what being mentally healthy and sex- successful really is. Todd, hello and welcome to my show. Thanks for having me here. So this book comes at a perfect time because I've been dealing with a lot of the dark side in my personal life. Um, and so, and it was funny this morning, I was having coffee with a friend and we were talking because I'm giving a talk this weekend. And so, of course, that's bringing up anxiety. And I said, you know, it's interesting because the guy I'm interviewing today is going to be, you know, he talks about the upside of the dark side. So can you explain to the listeners why there is an upside to the dark side? Well, it, it might benefit from, from talking about what I mean by the dark side in the first place. Okay. Which, which is, there are certain parts of our personality that are uncomfortable to experience, and there are certain parts of our personality that are a little bit socially undesirable to talk about. And those tend to be what we call the so-called negative emotions, what you just mentioned, you know, anxiety, guilt, embarrassment, boredom sadness, and then there are parts of your personality that we don't like to talk about in polite company, but actually we all engage in and we can all learn to be a little bit more comfortable with them. And that's narcissism, selfishness, Machiavellian, and, and actually having less of an emotional, empathetic reaction to other people that would be socially desirable. And the upside of these qualities is that in certain situations, it's exactly what you need to get the best possible outcome. And for a best, for a large majority of scenarios, being in a happy state of mind does not lead us to be the most creative, the most productive, and even the most able to connect with other people and form healthy relationships. Why is that? Well, part of it comes from evolution. And I think that it's, it, it's amazing to me as someone who takes an evolutionary approach to the human mind that we still have this, this discomfort that over the last 195,000 years of human generations, we've developed hardware to make us act in particular ways to deal with problems such as finding a tribe where people will like us, finding a mate that we can settle down with making sure that other people don't poach our meat who are more attractive, interesting, strong, and fun than us. Passing on our genes to the next generation, whether it's sexuality or whether it's our ideas and just being a mentor to the younger generation and surviving um, and taking care of our sense of self and our, our status in our social community. With these functional goals, we derive certain emotions to help us. 
And just as a concrete example, we experience guilt and we don't like feeling guilty. And as a Jewish kid growing up with Jewish aunts who inflict this on me on every day of why don't I call more often? Why don't I write more letters? Why don't I tell them what's going on during my college years? Why don't I tell them about my love life? And I usually say the reason I don't is because I get this constant belittering conversation every time that we have, that we talk, that try to talk about anything. But the emotion of guilt inspires us, motivates us to want to change our behavior such that we don't hurt other people and we're kinder and nicer. And so it's actually a great emotion. It's, it's really a positive emotion because it leads to positive, healthy, kind behavior. So Todd, let me see if I'm understanding you. So are you saying that it's these negative emotions that we have that are driving us to this this life of well-being? If we allow ourselves to experience discomfort and recognize that these are often cues that a situation isn't going as good as we'd like it to be or it can be going, then yes, this is the unappreciated pathway, not the only pathway, but the unappreciated pathway to greater productivity, greater creativity, greater effort toward our goals, and a greater sense of meaning and purpose in life. And when you do all of that, you'll often catch happiness along the way. So what's the appreciated pathway? Well, the reason that I wanted to, to spend three years of my life researching decades of work on negative emotions is because right now, we, especially in the United States, we have this culture, this almost oppressive culture of cheerfulness mm-hmm. and the pursuit of happiness and our declaration of independence and the notion that our kids should be happy, fulfilled, and never have any want go unsatisfied. And in this world where everyone should get prizes and everyone should be rewarded and appreciated because everyone can, can do anything if given the right opportunity, we don't appreciate the value of hard effort, negative emotions, stress and strain, which are the necessary precursors to most of what we want for ourselves, for our kids, for our neighbors, for our friends, maturity, wisdom, creativity, innovativeness flexibility, um, wisdom, these characteristics don't develop by telling people that they're good at everything and they have the potential to do anything if they put their mind to it. They come from the hard work and from appreciating the negative emotions that arise and altering your behavioral course. When you get a jolt of distress that tells you you're going off course from the things that you care most about. And when when you notice this emotion, do you, what about the people that don't notice the emotion? Can they still have the benefits? They can get the benefits, but, but they won't maximize. You think about peak performance, right, in mm-hmm. sports. Mm-hmm. Of how, do you, how do you make sure that your potential and your skills are going to come to fruition on a basketball court on a given night. Well, there's a lot of strategies, right? There's there's mental rehearsing. There's playing music that adrenalizes you and sets you up and relaxes you. There's um, stretching out appropriately. And in the same vein, to really take advantage of negative emotions, we need to understand them. We need, we need to be able to describe exactly what we're feeling in a situation. 
you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, and, and probably you're no different than me, that often when someone asks us how we're doing and things aren't going amazing, we say we're stressed or we're upset or we're pissed. Mm-hmm. And the problem, what, you know, what my research lab has found is that when you describe your emotional experiences in crude terms, I'm pissed, I'm upset, yet yeah, things suck. It's hard to get a foothold or a handhold in the problems or the difficulties being faced so that you can devote effort to try to change the situation, change your attitude about the situation, perhaps leave the situation, or recognize what's the contribution of other people and what's my contribution without being able to clearly, distinctly label what emotions we're feeling. It's hard to figure out where to go next. And if I was to say, instead of saying I'm pissed on a Friday, say I'm feeling a little bit angry, somewhat anxious, not sad at all, and not guilty at all, now all of a sudden I could think to myself, well, what's guiding that anxiety and anger? And by being able to label my emotions precisely, I might recognize, oh, earlier in the day, I had a conversation with my roommate and they were telling me that they don't appreciate the fact that I'm coming home at 11 o'clock at light and not turning the lights out. Now, I might have a problem with that because there might be another roommate who often comes after me. Why is the blame always constantly attributed to me? And that might not even realize that my entire day at work, I've been zoning out and having a, being distracted because of this conversation and this anger and anxiety that it caused me. If I just say that I'm feeling pissy, it's hard to work with that. So, Todd, were you always good at um, understanding your emotions and re- being able to go d- deep with them? Absolutely not. Horrific <laughs> at this. Um, and I'm still, and, and honestly, I, I'm still a work in progress. And what you know, you know, one of the reasons that I I do this research is not just to understand other people, but to understand myself and. And as a parent of three daughters, twin seven-year-olds and a two-year-old, I have no freaking idea what I'm doing. And there's one thing that I've learned is that anyone who says that they're a parenting expert, by definition, they're not an expert because nobody knows how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard as hell. My happiness has taken a huge hit over the past seven years. And, you know, one of the hard things about understanding our emotions is we have so much data and information that's inundating us on a daily basis. And I'm not even talking about when you open your smartphone. I'm talking about just being in a community where you have six to seven neighbors that you see when you walk out of your house. And if you think about how much your brain compiles in terms of what was the, what was the last conversation I had with these six people, how to build off of it, What's their mood? What, what do they look like they're interested in talking about right now? What's happening right now that's actually that the two of us, the seven of us are involved in? And then how are, what's the relationship between these other six people that are around me? Just that one scenario, it is amazing that this three-pound glob on top of our head can compute this such that we can actually produce words that can create a conversation and other people can understand us. And that's just one that's, that's three minutes of an entire day. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, it's complicated. And this is why I love psychology is what is the best way to navigate the shoals of everyday life where we're surrounded by nice people, obnoxious people, extremely 
hateful people, very loving people. And we have all of these goals about work, about family, about friends, about health, about spirituality. How do we make sense of all this? And what are the best ways to do it? And with science, we're able to test all of our ideas and figure out what works best for who in what dose. And that's, you know, and so this is an ongoing process for me. And the beauty is to be able to study people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, so I can distill this information to your listeners and everybody else out there. Well, I appreciate it. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but I appreciate that because, um, and that's a common message that my listeners hear, like Kristen Neff, who's been a frequent guest, or Brene Brown, right? Kristen right. Neff, she she needed to learn about compassion, and that's what she studies, and that's what she teaches, right? Brene Brown sucks at vulnerability, and that's what she's been studying and teaching, right? <laughs> so, and I think that's right. an important message for the listeners because so often it's, and I can do this to myself, oh, well, I should know this better. You know, why there must be something wrong with me instead of realizing that we're all works in progress. And we can, you know, like Carol Dweck, who also has been a frequent guest on the show, you know, it's about having that growth mindset of we can be learning. It's a process. It's not just this, you either have it or you don't have it. So I appreciate your candidness with my listeners there. Well, two things. One is you hang out with very intelligent, wise people. I'm honored to be part of this group. And the, the second is, you know, one thing, one mantra that I always have is it's not about what you do in a given moment. So if I see an incredibly interesting person because they're wearing a Pixies t-shirt and was one of my favorite bands in the 1980s, and if I decide I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable in my skin and so I don't have a conversation with them, and I regret it because I rarely see that kind of a t-shirt now that it's 2015, what I do in that moment doesn't matter. And what I do a moment if I yell at my kids because I'm just not in control of my emotions doesn't matter. And if it ends up that I don't have a conversation with my wife face-to-face without screens for five minutes before I go to sleep, that's not going to be – I don't have to berate myself that I'm not a healthy contributing member to this long-term relationship. But it's the patterns over time. If over time you don't commit a habitual amount of time face-to-face with a romantic partner, it's going to slowly systematically decline. If you don't habitually stop yourself before you yell at your children to figure out, let me understand what I'm feeling first and let me try to communicate it with words rather than with volume, well, then your kids are going to have problems. But we're all going to have slippages, and I view just like anybody else. And I think that's a very important message. It's the patterns that matter, not any specific moment that we pull out of our lives. So, Todd, that's the whole reason you're on the show. I'd heard about um, somebody, a friend of mine had heard you speak at the Harvard conference earlier in the fall, and she told me about this. And, you know, because so often I think we, we make those small moments really matter. And this idea that it's the patterns that you 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 live and which way in that bring you to the outcome of the lives or you said it more eloquently than I did. I apologize. But, um, and I appreciate that so much because I think we can beat ourselves up because we made this mistake or because, you know, we didn't parent in the moment the way that we would want to parent or the way that we intellectually know how, right. And then we don't circle back and, and try to do a better job. We just may pull away from that or same thing with having those hard conversations with our partners. Right. I completely agree. So, 
the the patterns. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Because I really want to cement this point home to the listeners. Um, can you give some more examples of how these patterns really matter? Sure, and, and I'm glad you want to go into this in more depth. Think of it as a, a choice point where there's a moment of time where you're facing a choice between do I approach something that's desirable and it's, I think it's going to be interesting, intriguing, possibly a place for fulfillment, for joy, for tranquility, or do I avoid the situation because it's also going to make me vulnerable and that's anxiety-provoking. Now I might feel embarrassed. I might make a fool of myself because I have a PhD and I might say something stupid because this is an incredibly attractive person physically and I think I'm a 7 and they're a 9.5 and I'm already blubbering my, my speech and I'm not even within 50 yards of them. And so in these choice points, do I approach or do I avoid something that's interesting? We often have these unwanted thoughts or feelings, right? So I have the thought of, if I'm not funny, this attractive person won't like me. I might have the thought, which is, they're out of my league. Mm-hmm. Or I might have the emotion, which is, if I get embarrassed, I feel embarrassed. If I feel anxious, that means that I'm weak. And one of the things we can do in these choice points is we can work with those unwanted thoughts and feelings to try to distance ourselves from it explore them, but recognize that we are not our thoughts. We are not our emotions because we're able to look at them. I'm able to look at the emotions I'm experiencing and thus there's some part of me that's more than those emotions. I can look at my thoughts and say, oh, that makes no sense. So clearly there's a part of us that's not just our thoughts. And let me just offer a very concrete strategy that your listeners can use, which is when you get embarrassed or when you have this imposter syndrome. Here I am on a talk show and you're talking about Brene Brown, Carol Dweck, and Kristen Neff, all you know, intellectual heroes of mine. And so you feel like an imposter. Well, what can I possibly add beyond what they've already said? When you have the thought, I'm not worthy of being here, that's not really accurate. And when you when your listeners have the thought, I'm boring, I'm not attractive. I'm not interesting. Here's my suggestion, my tip. To add this set, this little bit in front of that sentence, I'm having the thought that I'm not attractive. I'm having the thought that I'm not interesting. I'm having the thought that I don't belong here. So it gets a little bit closer to reality because it's not that I'm unattractive. I'm not interesting. It's you're having the thought. But that's not, that's not even accurate enough put a little bit more in front of there. When you have that, that thought, that self-imposter syndrome, that anxiety that you wish will go away, the sadness that you wish will go away, don't just say, I'm having the thought that I'm attractive. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm attractive. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm not fitting in. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm not comfortable here, that I don't belong here that I'm lonely. And when you do that, it's more scientifically accurate. Your brain produces a thought. You're having this thought. You notice you're having this thought. And when you do it, it's not, you don't get rid of these thoughts and emotions. What you do is you create distance. You create space such that 
I can have all these uncomfortable thoughts. I can have all of these distressing emotions and still put one foot in front of the other and put one word in front of the other and have a conversation with an attractive person stand in front of a room full of people and speak my piece, talk to someone that's being disrespectful to me. And even though my heart is beating out of my chest, I can notice those sensations and I can still say what I want to say, even with the distress that I'm experiencing. And I can take a deep breath and be there, even if I'm shaking, even if, I'm, if my face is flushed, even if I feel like I'm going to vomit. <laughs> putting that little statement in front ends up being very helpful because what we typically do is we want to try to obliterate our distress. You know, whether it's through alcohol, whether it's through, um, through exercise, I'm going to have sex, I'm going to pump away the pain that way, whether, you know, there are very seemingly healthy things you could do. It's really just a way of you avoiding the uncomfortable parts of yourself. And a better way of doing this is to look at that, what's actually happening. Your brain produces things you don't like. You're having this thought, you're having this emotion. You're noticing I'm having this emotion. You're noticing that you're having this thought. So by putting some space in between you and your thoughts, right? Not realizing that we are not our thoughts and we get to choose what we want to listen to. Like I liken this to standing at the gross in the grocery checkout line and uh, especially at the beginning of the year, there's all the New Year's resolutions and all the latest weight loss. And, and, and I just read them with humor. I don't, I don't gravitate towards them and go, oh, this is going to change my life, right? It, there's information that's floating out there. And if we could do that with our own brain of here, here are these thoughts, here are these things that are going on in my head, which ones do I want to choose to believe in? I mean, you know, am I not good enough to be here? Am I not worthy enough to be here, right? That's something, that's a common thought that I think we all struggle with versus, well, I'm here right now, right? I mean, you are worthy to be here because I invited you to be on my show. And uh, so we, if we can separate it, then is that what allows us to actually feel these feelings that, you know, like, I don't particularly like to feel anxiety. I don't particularly like to be vulnerable. Um, but I, I know how important it is to feel it and to move through it so that I can show up in my life um, versus in the past, I might do something else that was maybe more destructive. That's right. And it right, doesn't even be destructive. The destructive part is avoiding situations that evoke thoughts and feelings that we like. We end up limiting our social space. We're limiting the playground that we can play in because we can't control our emotions. Our hormones affect our emotions. The time of day affects our emotions. Other people affect our emotions just because they remind us of people from our past. Mm -hmm. Someone that might have bullied us when we were in third grade. So our parents that maybe we didn't get along with. A relative who might have been abusive towards us. We might not even recognize this. Our brain will process this, and all of a sudden, we feel embarrassed and a sense of shame, and we have no idea where it came from. And so we don't want to live our lives controlled by our emotions, which is if we experience distress, it means we're probably in a dangerous scenario that we should get out of. We can create space so that we can work towards the things we value despite the presence of pain. And this is what we call, what I call psychological flexibility. The ability to pursue what we care about most despite the presence of pain. And that's just one of many strategies to create some distance 
between the thoughts and the thinker, which is us, or the emotions and the person that has those emotions, which is us. And then, so then once you get into that space where you're feeling these feelings, what do you do? Because don't you need to develop resilience to be able to feel these hard feelings? Well, this is resilience because we're not trying to get rid of them. We're just noticing them. And by noticing them, we're aware of what motivational action is it pushing me towards. And so if I feel anger, anger is the evolutionary response that was created over the course of 200,000 years in humans, which is a sign that something outside of us is obstructing our goals and we want to do something about it. When you feel anger, you don't want to avoid. You actually want to approach. You want to fight. You want to take back your life. You want to make sure that people can't walk over you. You want to make sure that you can get to the mountains in the background, which is you're representing your goals, and you're going to push things out of the way. And when you can recognize those emotions, then you can respond to them in a healthier manner. Instead of taking a, a toilet bowl seat, ripping it off and throwing it at the person next to you who's acting inappropriately, <laughs> you can just express it. Listen, you will not talk to me in that manner in my office. And that's okay for you to express it. But if you don't understand those emotions that are rising, you can end up being more violent and aggressive than you actually want to be, and it won't lead to the best possible outcome. Okay, so you're a father of three girls. I'm, I have four kids. And, um, how do you teach emotions to your family? Oh, this is my favorite part of life. I, I think of when I taught them how to ride a bicycle when they were five years old, two-wheeler off the training wheels and they would get so upset and angry when they were going up a hill and they couldn't get up and they'd be crying and they'd be pissed and they'd be yelling at me and I told them I said listen if those emotions are exactly what you should be experiencing this hill is hard to get up and the only reason I'm getting up this hill is because I've been working out for the past 25 years I want you to think of every single time that I said something that you didn't like. Every time I put you in timeout, get pissed and yell and get off that hill. And use, use that anger. Don't just say you're angry. Use it. Like, crush those pedals. And, and even to this day, now it's three years later, they still say they think about that when they get up hills when they're riding their bike. And, and now I'm transitioning of the same lesson applies to school assignments that are difficult that are beyond their skill level books that they're reading when they hit words that they don't understand, which is that anger motivate that to find an alternative way to solve the problem. Don't just get angry, use it. And so run downstairs, slam the book down, turn on the computer, whip on Wikipedia and figure out what the hell is the revolutionary war? Who the hell is Neil Armstrong? And when you find a couple of them online, which is the one that's the real Neil Armstrong that this book is talking about. And so, Using air constructively. I tell them, there's nothing, anger, sadness, anxiety, they, my kids know this. They, they've known the word context since the age of five, which is negative emotions are neither good or bad. It's what you do with them. And one thing, you know, you know one, one takeaway for your listeners is this word negative in front of negative emotions. Let's get rid of that and just say, 
emotions are functional. They help us to work through our goals and work through problems. And sometimes anger is healthy and positive, and sometimes anger is negative, and sometimes joy is positive, and sometimes joy is negative. Joy is negative if your partner is telling you that they feel a lack of sexual intimacy since you've had kids, and you're smiling and thinking about like all the amazing times that you had sexual experiences at that moment with your wife or your husband or your partner. Well, that's not the right emotion for the situation. (laughs) I would say that at that exact moment, you have joy just became a negative emotion for you. It's time to, you know, to start thinking more clearly about what your partner is saying and stop daydreaming. So I love how you with your girls, right, are teaching them because happened in the past, girls have been taught, oh, you're not supposed to feel angry. Nice girls don't get angry, right? Kind of suppress it, push it aside. But now you're teaching them, here's this anger and how are you going to funnel it or how are you going to channel it and make it work for you? I'll give you another great example. And, and, I, and I agree, you know, raising three girls makes you become a feminist extremely quickly. <laughs> It's, uh, I don't have a choice in the matter. I mean, I, I constantly, I, I mean, I have socks that say girls rule on them. I kid you not, but I wear to work regularly. <laughs> and th- th- my girls were in an all-star soccer game in October. Mm-hmm. And there was this strange girl on the other team. And I was like, I'm like the assistant, the assistant soccer coach. And she kept on coming up to my girls behind them and other girls on my team and saying, I'm so much prettier than you. Look at me. And she just whisper, right? Look at like a psychopath, like like Dexter's female counterpart on Showtime. And so at halftime, one of my girls was crying, and I said, "I said, Raven, what's wrong?" So Jess is whispering in my ear all the time. It's just prettier than me. And then the other girls like, "Yeah, she did that to me also." And so I sat them all down. Meanwhile, at halftime, what you're supposed to do in a soccer game is give them strategies of what worked and what didn't work with the actual soccer ball, and give them skills to actually pass more often or defend the goal better in the next half. Instead, I have all these girls around me. I'm like, okay, what can we do? What, why is this girl whispering in so many of her ears that she's more attractive than you? And they're raising their hand, even though it's not, this is what kids do when, they, when they're in school too long. And they're saying, you know, I think she's trying to take our attention off the game. She's trying to, she's trying to distract us. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. So what do you, what can you do about it? And they're like, well, we can answer a question and tell her that she's wrong. I'm like, well, why do you think she's saying it on the field when other people could be hearing what what she's doing? Like she's trying to make other things. She's trying to make other people laugh. I'm like, well, so it sounds like one thing she's trying to do is take the stage. Well, what's the way to take the stage from her? And they said, and a couple of girls, these are seven year olds, said to be funny. When you're funny, people listen to you. I'm like, so what's a funny way that we can respond that's not mean? She asked the question, and then they came up with this idea. Again, this is about using sadness and anger effectively. Which is, so what they came up with was every time this girl would whisper in their ears saying, they would, they would stop with the purposeful pause and say, hmm, uh, not, not even close, actually. And then just run down the field towards the ball. And they would do this, and with three times later, this girl stopped talking to everyone and had no energy on the field. Now, they didn't do anything mean. They were just responding to the question, right? This is all about, in the, in the situation that you're in, 
how can you use your emotions most effectively in terms of expressing your feelings with the right dose and the right inflection and the right way of approaching the person that's next to you. And this is a bunch of seven-year-olds can do this. And so we can all be trained to experience and express our emotions more effectively and wield them like tools to improve the quality of our lives. So how do we get trained in this? Well, it's, you know, we, so we can all do what I just did, right? Which is that, Little, little mad scientists. We have to experiment with different ways of acting in our everyday life. We tend to have default patterns, typical ways that we respond. You know, for many years, I was your prototypical Neanderthal guy. Um, you know, you can't see me, you know, but I have a little bit too much muscles on my arms and in my pectorals. And I would just kind of you get very aggressive and loud and abrasive if someone used profanity towards me or show disrespect towards me. And now I've realized that for some people, it's incredibly valued to actually become very quiet and actually lower your voice when you're angry. And they're like, that makes no sense. Why would you possibly say that and think that you're going to persuade me? And when you say it in that way, the anger is still there, but you figure out what works best for the person that you're next to based on how you guys have had been interacting over time. And you find sometimes it works best to actually have a power posture where you're standing up with, with a great physique and with your chest out. Other times to be a little bit more quiet. Other times is to wave your hand. And other times actually to stop and say, listen, you know what? Let's talk when we're a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more calm. Because right now I'm upset about the way you're communicating with me. Something about what I'm doing is bothering you. Let's put, it, let's, let's put a plug in it, and we'll, we'll come back to each other and talk about this another time. And we have to experiment. You know, if I was to come in here and say that I know exactly what, how to express anger effectively in all situations for somebody, um, this is just like a, a charlatan, right, coming in there with magic tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to experiment, and we have to, we have to keep a mental journal or actually write a journal of what works best. Now, for women in particular... I can't even go into the details, but it's actually a lot more important to expressing your anger in particularly with in an effective way such that we're focusing on the problem and not the person that causes the problem. And the amount of energy that a woman displays, the, the, the room, the amount of freedom that someone gives a woman to express their emotion is much narrower than for a man. And that's just, you know, the course of, you know, a hundred or so odd years of sexism built into culture. Um, so knowing that women have to be a little bit more careful and a little bit more astute and emotionally intelligent about how to express their emotions, men are given a little bit more leeway. Now, I think this is changing over the course of time from one generation to the next, but it speaks to the importance of not just appreciating anger and listening to it, but how do I effectively just it to a person so that I can get concessions in the in negotiation. I can influence and persuade another person, which is our goal when we're communicating to other people. So this makes me think of um, in my past life, I used to uh, teach at community college and I was also the swim coach there. And, and I was very young. I was 23 when I first started and I was, you know, uh, 
And then, wow. um, yeah, so I was very young. And, and then I uh, had a lot of assistant coaches and they were young men typically. And I remember thinking like I put on a lot of armor as I went and became this head coach at this college and, you know, in, in athletics is very male dominated and they have viewpoints about women. But I put on this armor and I decided that I was either, if I was a nice person, I would get run over. So then I decided, okay, I can't be a nice person. So I'm going to be the, the B word, which I can't say, but, um, on the air. And when I'd hired these new coaches, I would explain to them, I am not a nice person. You know, this is what we do because don't expect me to be bringing you cupcakes and balloons on your birthday. That's not who I am. We have work to do. And this is serious. And one of the things that I've learned now that I'm 42 and through the years, and Kristen Neff has really helped me with this, is that compassionate people can have boundaries, right? It doesn't have to be, I don't have to be, I can yeah. be very direct and I can, you know, and hold that space, but I don't have to be that B word in order to get things done. And, or with, with the idea of if I was nice, I get walked over. So that's the thing that's been great with Kristen Neff and the compassionate people have boundaries. And I constantly reminding myself that it's my fence post that I need to keep up. You know, it's great. I, I use the same, the same techniques with a different term, which is, you know, for many years I've worried about like Maybe I'm too judgmental about people because I love really interesting people that have, will express their opinions and traveled the world and, um, you know, read very, very kind of left and center books and listen to world music I've never been exposed to so that I gain something, information and experiences that I haven't gained myself yet. And I've always thought I was judgmental. And then I realized, what is it? It's very similar to saying that a self-compassionate person in our boundaries is that you can be a mindful, very kind person and still be discerning in terms mm -hmm. of who you give your time and energy to. And being kind but selective is a very important mantra that frees up all of that worry that we have to actually be fully present, fully supportive, and fully loving to all the people in our lives all of the time. And this is where you know so many stay-at-home parents get burned out because they feel as if if their kids are in need, they'd be a bad parent if they didn't give everything to them. And I would say no, but to be selfish and make sure that you care for yourself and make sure that you make clear boundaries and say, I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm going to recharge my batteries, put on my headphones and go lay on a yoga mat. We'll make you a better parent. And because your kids are going to have to be autonomous mm -hmm. in response, you'll actually become a better parent, ironically, by not being the nice guy or girl all the time. Well, because it's allowing them to have that space, right, to go through their struggle and realize that, you know, they can have struggle and come out of it and then they'll have be more hopeful than somebody who hasn't ever had to go through struggle. And at the minimum, and if it, even if they don't end up hopeful, they will have experimented with at least one or two <laughs> ways of handling the situation. And you can figure out if those didn't work, okay, let's figure out why. Cool, let's cross those off the list. Let's go down to another one. Yeah. And that goes into, I think the, um, I grew up in a very fixed mindset. Like, you know, you have to be perfect. You can't make mistakes. And I've been really working in my adult years about being a growth mindset and being a coach You kind of have to be that way anyways. Um, but, uh, that, that idea of experimenting. So whether it's experimenting with their emotions or when we parent, right. I think being a parent is one of the most courageous things. And it's the most challenging things that I've ever been through. Uh, but it's constantly experimenting what works, what doesn't work. You had mentioned earlier about a journal. Do you journal about this stuff for yourself? 
No. I mean, I'm a writer, and my almost every blog post that I write starts with a story of my kids. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the last thing I, with all the amount of energy I put into parenting, the last thing I want to do is internally about parenting. Mm-hmm. So we so that being said, people don't have to if they think, oh my gosh, my lives are overwhelmed. The last thing I can do is journal about my emotions. But if they're mindfully checking in and reflecting, would that be effective? I think if 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 you want to create a goal to make progress on, you have to have some way to measure how much progress you're making. You know, for me, I wanted to actually you know, increase my muscle mass by seven pounds. Well, I have to measure myself. Um, what's the fat content? What's the what's the muscular content? And if you want to, you know, if you want to improve your speed on the mile, how fast you run a mile, you've got to keep. You've got to you got to be having measurements. And the same thing is, if you want to improve the way you communicate to people, whether you want to be more playful, you want to be more serious, you want to be more comfortable being anxious, you want to play Brene Brown, and in, in terms of exposing your sense of vulnerability when it's when it arises when you're talking to other people well keep it keep it keep a note and it could be very simple which is yes or no did you share your vulnerabilities with another person um did you, how did the other person respond good bad it ended up being irrelevant it's as simple as that and what you what almost everybody will find over the course of time is that most people feel a, a greater sense of bonding by sharing pain and vulnerability with people than when people share their triumphs and accomplishments, which is what you typically see in a Facebook <laughs> or an Instagram feed is, you know, all these beautiful pictures of smiling babies and happy families and, you know, at dinners and in um, Atlantis and the Bahamas. And what they don't show is when, you know, the kid urinates all over their bed, there's, there's that metal life comb that's all over the, you know, that's in the sink that nobody wants to touch and, you know, there's, there's and there's a stack of dishes that that are all over the the kitchen. You know, not just the kitchen sink, but the, the kitchen island. Um, you don't see those pictures on Facebook, but when you share the pain of parenthood, I mean, I feel a bond to you already just by the fact is you're one of these people that will be honest about being a parent. It speeds up, ramps up the speed of intimacy, and we'll learn that. And here's the other part about this. If you find out that when you share your vulnerabilities and stress with someone and they respond to you by pointing out that you're weak mm-hmm. or maybe you're not up for the task or maybe you shouldn't have come in if you're so stressed out, you learn something important as well. You learn that this is not someone to have in your social circle. <laughs> and, that's, and that's even more valuable than connecting with somebody else. It's like clearing out the clutter. You realize that that's just not where you want to put your energy. The ultimate litmus test. If I talk about the horrors of parenting and how sometimes I can't stand my kids and they look at me aghast like I've I've just put someone into, just drowned somebody, I know I will never talk to you again unless I'm forced to run into you. You're not my type of person. Yeah, par- parenting is hard. Every time I thought I'd mastered it, another kid, uh, not even another kid, but just, you know, my kid would change what they were doing and I'd have to retry again. And here I go again into teenagehood with my youngest too. So um, it's an interesting journey and it's hard. Um, so I want, I, I got to go back to this point because I can hear my listeners freaking out. 
oh my gosh, we have to do, you know, we have to keep track. We have to keep mental, or, you know, we have to keep track. On, are you saying that can, is it as effective as a scientist? Is it as effective for people, right, that aren't in laboratories, but are living a day-to-day life to keep mental track of, okay, I'm sharing my vulnerability, right? And I had this conversation. Let me reflect about it and think back. And was it effective? What can I tweak? As Is that effective as effective or not as effective as writing it down and keeping score that way? Well, let me disarm some of the concerns of your listeners. It, every, every concrete goal, and all your goals should be concrete, something that you can actually make progress towards. So if you say, I want to be a more compassionate parent, that's a value. That's an abstract principle. There's no goal there. The goal might be, I'm going to ask questions about my kid, about their experiences every day when they come home, and I'm going to listen. And um, I will not say something. I will talk less than my kid talks. That's a concrete goal. The value is I want to be a compassionate parent. And so if we will make, we will devote more effort and make more progress if we write and keep track of how these things are going. That being said, you don't have to. Now, what is it? What is it? What is it more helpful when you don't write things down? When you're working on specific relationships with people that you see on a regular basis. So, if you're talking about your family members, close friends, colleagues that you're going to see at work on a regular basis, you're talking about changing the pattern of how the two of you relate. And so, you don't actually have to write it down because you can actually notice that you feel more revitalized when you're around them. You feel, um, you feel more comfortable around them. You have a greater willingness to want to be around them. And if that's the case, it shows that you're moving in the right direction. If it's, but if you want to change the way that you relate to your emotions outside of those relationships, it's hard to put a finger on it. Because if I, if I ask you, you know, what was your anxiety level last Tuesday in the morning compared to earlier in the evening? You're going to say, God, I have no freaking clue. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, and that's what we put. So we kind of, if we don't keep track of these things, it all becomes a big glop. And we just say, well, last week was okay. And the week before, I think was better than that week. And that's what you want to keep track to see how things are going. And you don't have to do it every day. You can do it at the end of the week of just what were the salient events that happened that week in terms of really connecting to people. And having a difficult time and feeling as if you're not comfortable in your skin. And just writing three episodes for each one of those, you know, that alone. I mean, it's, you're talking about two minutes of time in an Evernote document. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have my clients, they do a weekly reflection every week before we meet. And one client, as we were wrapping up, she went through her weekly reflections. And it was interesting for her. Uh, to go through because sometimes we can discount our progress. And when she went back and started rereading where she was when she started and going through them, you know, for the several weeks that there were, she, she started to see some of the concrete stuff of, wow, the, this is how I used to handle stuff. And this is, look at how I can move through this now. Right. I was, she became more resilient. And, um, so I, 
I like how it's not just this one blueprint formula that you're talking about. There, whether it's a daily check-in, a weekly check-in, um, some writing, or you know, just even like, okay, am I having this conversation? You know, and, and keeping track that way, um, just so that people can look back to help them get information. I'm so glad that you said that because you know I, I would have missed that if you didn't mention it. And it's so important because we're talking about something abstract, emotions thoughts relating to people, we can we keep raising the bar. Once we get a little bit more comfortable talking, saying our piece and speaking our mind in meetings and you know, raising our hand in class more often, we forget that we were once shy and quiet and invisible. And we raise the bar and all of a sudden it's it's now of, yeah, but there were other people that were talking more than me yesterday. And you yeah, you forget where the starting point was, and you forget what stage one and stage two were like in this, you know, 55 days journey that we're on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you bring up an amazing point. That I, That's just from my swimming background, because one of the things, you know, when, you know, a couple hundreds of a second become, can become life-changing, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. and and then you, you're upset because you're three one hundred slower than you thought you would have been, and but then you have to look back. Okay, a year ago at this time, what was my time? You know, where was I at? Or three months ago, what was my time? And the thing that's beautiful about swimming is that it is very concrete, right? There, it's very tangible. It's not even like track and field where you can have wind be a variable. I mean, a time is pretty much a time, and uh, so using that to to with this emotional, this abstract area, I think is really important. Of like. So what we can look at, where were we a year ago? Where were we six months ago? How did I handle things? Um, because I mean, like I, I have anxiety, obviously, going into this talk this weekend. But it, I am, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I haven't done a lot of personal work and growth. It's just I'm going into another arena that's raising the bar, right? And um, and I and it's walking through that, but there's still been a lot of emotional growth from the shy kid who never wanted to speak out in public at all. Um, as we wrap up, Todd, I want to just wrap up with what are the keys to mental health and success? To me, the key to mental health and success is we have the most. Let, let me. I'm going to actually take the inverse first, which is what I think is the most toxic message towards mental health, this notion that you should feel good and run from feeling bad. And having anxiety, sadness, guilt, embarrassment, disgust, guilt, um, self-imposter syndrome, a sense of self-doubt, none of these thoughts are problematic. It's when we're unwilling to be in contact with these thoughts and feelings and try to run from them and avoid them and avoid situations that might invite them. That's, that's where pathology happens. That's when we have emotional problems. Mental health, the key to mental health is being emotionally and socially agile. And what that means is, is that you are willing to experience what the complexity of the human world brings you such that you will continue to work towards the things that matter most most to you, despite whatever your mind produces, your emotions and your thoughts, and the willingness to match your behavior to what the situation requires. 
which means that sometimes being a little bit selfish is useful, sometimes being kind is useful, sometimes being compassionate is useful, and sometimes standing your ground with great stubbornness is useful. And we're able to be comfortable with all the sides of a personality such that they become tools to get what we want in this world and help support those people we care most about. That's what mental health is about. I love it. Todd, thank you so much for being a guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. You are, you ask great, interesting, inspiring questions. Oh, well, thank you. This is, I love this topic and I hope um, I can get you to come back again to have further conversations. Definitely. Count on it. I think I may have just cornered Todd to come back by asking him, inviting him back during the interview. Anyways, we, I had a good time talking with him as he did. So the, the things that I, I took away from his talk was, one, the importance of the negative emotions. One of the things after we got off the air, we talked and, and he had made that comment again about me doing a good job as an interviewer and with my questions. And I said, well, prior to the interview, I was really nervous. I was actually hoping he would cancel or postpone it because I had a lot of anxiety. And his response, of course, was, well, that's why it was so good that those emotions got me heightened up to and then it allowed me to connect. I wanted to do a good job versus if as he had said if I just said, "Oh, three, you know, this is another interview in the pile of interviews." La di da. So, if you can use your emotions to help you move forward, right? I could have used my emotions to give up on myself, to quit and just to email him and say, "Oh, I can't do it. Sorry, I'm sick." I daydreamed that quite often this week with the week that I had. But I never followed through on that. I followed through on the commitment of having him on my show. And part of the thing that helped me with that was just for me to be compassionate to myself of, I've got this. I've done lots of interviews. I'll work on connecting with him. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, that will be okay too. And giving myself that space and not looking for, this has got to be the next great interviewer. I need to get Todd's approval, right? Which my ego can go to. So using these negative emotions or, you know, and first, actually, he said, drop the word negative, right? Using these emotions that feel uncomfortable. One of the notes that I wrote for myself was, it's one of the mantras that I have is becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it's so easy to just spit that out there and say that and just own it until you're having the week that I'm having where you're really having to work through, gosh, yes, I understand this is good for me, but I really don't want it right now. I've told that to my husband many times this week. Yeah, but I don't really want it. And he said, these will be good growth opportunities. And I said, I can't wait till I'm on the other side. And I can look back because I'm sure I'll reflect and say, oh, yes, that really gave me strength. That really helped me develop my courage. But right now, it's really hard to go through. And the big thing is that I'm trying not to give up on myself. And I love how he gave me the reminder. And this is stuff that I've known. It's been talked about on the show. It's what I help my clients with. But that we are not our thoughts. We are not our emotions. And in the dark of night, it's so easy to get taken up with those thoughts or those emotions. But we are not our thoughts and our emotions. And I love his little exercise of saying, you know, the idea when he used the example of, you know, I'm not worthy to be on the show, right? Because there's Brene and Kristen Neff and Carol Dweck. And then realizing I am having the thought that I'm not worthy of being here to even adding another disclaimer I notice I am having the thought, I am not worthy of being here. 
getting more into that compassionate observer place and creating that space, that separation. That is just so huge. And that's something that I really work on myself. I mean, and I love the fact that Todd was so willing to be vulnerable when I asked him, like, so are you, have you been good at this? Because prior to doing the show over eight years ago, I thought, oh, well, if this is something you're out teaching, you must have always been really good at it because you're teaching us how. And what's really come about with every guest that I've had is these are the areas that they've struggled with. They've been to this hell and they've come out of it, right? Or they're still learning and they're processing it. And that's something that I just so appreciate from all the guests that I've had on the show is that willingness to say, like Kristen F., no, I really wasn't good at compassion and that's why I chose to study it. And uh, so I invite you to stop beating yourself up and invite you to, you know, this idea of the upside of your dark side, right? Why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment and to embrace that. And he gave some great tips and about our emotions and what we can do and practicing. And we talked about writing it down and how you can keep track. Um, and I love his his thing called Mad Little Scientist. He did a TED Talk, which I'll include in the, the show notes. But you know, being the mad little scientist. I always talk about being the scientist in your life, right? He says the mad little scientist in your life. Be the mad little scientist and go and experiment and test it out. And the big thing is having that empathy for yourself where you can circle back and try it again instead of judging yourself. I, I can often go into that judgment of myself and go into all or nothing and define myself. And it's about practicing not going into that space, but how can I move through it? So thanks so much for listening. And I really want to give a shout out to those of you that have been putting writing reviews on the iTunes. Last night as I was struggling with, you know, doing the show and, you know, dealing with my own anxiety, I happened upon it and my heart just opened up. There were a lot of recent reviews and you guys have talked about the 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 change of format with the show and having the conversations and you still really liked it. You were apprehensive. So Thank you so much because while it's not what I live on, but it does, it does help me. It's like my little support that helps me show up and it's like, okay, this is these, these are the people and this is why I do this show. So thank you so much for leaving iTunes reviews and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And in there I have shows on there and I also write a letter every week to you. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. 
I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.